are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. The MBDA would like to offer a sincere note of thanks to Associate Member Bike Exchange for their continued support of the NBDA and retailers at large. BikeExchange.com is the world's leading bicycle marketplace. Across eight countries, Bike Exchange prides itself as being the one-stop destination to buy, sell, and find everything bike. Since 2007, Bike Exchange has fueled the passion to ride by making it easy to buy and sell online. They connect with consumers everywhere to find, research, and buy all their related cycling needs through their marketplace. They also support and connect hundreds of retail bike stores and brands throughout the world. Bike Exchange is committed to helping people find the right cycling product in a single location and is considered the online destination for all things bicycles. Connecting your retail location to Bike Exchange is free and you pay a commission only on what you sell. Join Bike Exchange today and you'll receive a free one-year membership to the Professional Bike Mechanics Association and a free copy of the NBDA Cost of Doing Business Report. This membership and research has a combined value of $750, and it is being provided free of charge to bike retailers that join Bike Exchange today. Learn more at bikeexchange.com. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is MBDA President Heather Mason. Specialty bicycle retailers are the heart of the cycling industry, and since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. We truly believe when we create thriving bicycle retailers, the industry and the cycling community follows. The NBDA is a non-for-profit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you're not already a member, you can learn more and join online at nbda.com. Okay, let's dive into this. Today's guest is Mark Purdy, referred to as a sensei in the art of bicycle maintenance. <laughs> His impressive background runs over 35 years in the bicycle industry at all levels from manufacturing to small town mom and pop shops to multi-store chains and high-end boutiques. He's been a race mechanic for U.S. amateur and Conti teams and an entrepreneur himself running a retail service course in New York City called iFix Bikes. His knowledge, know-how, and everyday wit comes through in every conversation. As you think you'll come into it simple, but what you leave with is so much more. I am thankful for my friendship with Mark and his insight and ability to look past the moment and see so much more has helped me personally navigate moments of my own career. Super thankful to have him join today, a first mechanic on Bicycle Retail Radio. I have no idea where this will go, but I'm happy to simply start here. Welcome, Mark, to Bicycle Retail Radio. Thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, my God. I love how the social feeds keep us connected. And through the years, you and I have stayed close. And I think just a month ago or so, I reached out and I was like, Mark, want to come on the podcast? And you were like, uh, <laughs> I'm warning you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've met before, right? Are you sure you want to do this to yourself? It is too, though, you know, uh, a couple of reasons I reached out to you just because when I first met you during my Merck's time, every opportunity that we had, every conversation, I left with, you know, thinking a different way. Your insight and intuition is something that I really respect. 
And I was looking to have a mechanic on the show. You know, we've been doing a lot recently with service center profitability for retailers and making even monthly mechanics opportunity for mechanics to come together in a virtual event. And I really thought it was time to bring someone on the show and you, my friend, thank you. I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to be here, really. I mean, any opportunity for me to transmit some of the crap that I've collected over the years, I'll take that opportunity. For our listeners, a little insight. I first met Mark years ago. It might have been 2015 or earlier when I was working with Merck's Bicycles in New York City. Mark was running iFix Bikes, high-end service course shop located in the city, and he was working with me to deliver Merck's Bikes to U.S. consumers. Mm -hmm. Mark, catch us up for a moment. Where are you now? It's been quite a journey, I think, for you. Well, right now I'm back in Milwaukee at Wheel and Sprocket. Shout out to those guys. After I closed iFix Bikes, it was just time. It was played out. It was done. Time to move on to something else because, you know, this is a big industry and lots of stuff to do. I moved up to Albany for a little while, worked with Stephen at uh, Savile Road. He's doing fantastic up there too. But I grew up in the Midwest and I kind of missed the Midwest. And I had a past with Wheel and Sprocket. And so it was time to just kind of head back here for a little while. And, and so it's been, oh boy, four or five years that I've been back, back in Wisconsin. It's exciting to see your journey. And, you know, that is one thing about being in the cycling industry and a trained mechanic. I feel like you could really go where you want to go and and have a really interesting career. So to rewind, because I know some of our listeners are mechanics or maybe even thinking about getting into the cycling industry in a mechanics role. Like, how did you get here? Like what (laughs) prompted you to enter the industry? Well, actually it started off. I got tricked into it. My father was a bike rider. He wasn't really competitive, just a casual rider. I grew up in Kansas, by the way. And he came knocking on my bedroom door one spring Sunday morning saying, hey, do you think your older brother would want to go do this bike tour later in the summer with me? I'm like, I don't know, but maybe I'd like to go. Oh, no, there's no way you could possibly get in shape in time. Oh, yeah. So, you know, kind of tricked me into getting involved in cycling. And once I started riding, that was it. I was kind of hooked. I figured out pretty early on in my riding career, though, that I was not particularly naturally talented. So I kind of gravitated towards the mechanical side of things just out of practicality. I like to ride. It's fun. It's what I do. But yet I really enjoy the mechanical aspect of things, the creativity, the logic involved. It, it all is, has appealed to me since day one. What an awesome dad, like that, the psychology trick, kudos to him for that. (laughs) No, but it's so true. Like, how, you know, do you go about doing this tour and then, you know, eventually you end up as a pro Mm -hmm. race mechanic? That would seem to me like something Mm -hmm. that a lot of mechanics might aspire to, to be in, you know, team car. What Mm -hmm. is that journey? Are there certifications you pick up along the way? Because at this point in the States, we have some organizations getting going in this regard, but you know, this is 35 years ago or so, and right. not, not to date you on, on the podcast right now. But. Well, no, no, no. I, I didn't necessarily take the most direct route to get to, to where I am now. I mean, it's been 35 years and it's taken that long to get here. If you want to be a race mechanic, though, then you definitely need enough experience just working in shops and working with bicycles to be able to understand the USA Cycling Mechanics Clinic. You got to go to the clinic. But if you aren't 
experienced enough first, then the clinic's not going to do you much good. But the clinic shows you how to be a race mechanic versus how to be a shop mechanic. They are very, very different things as far as mindset and the amount of time you've got to make snap decisions, resources available, the end result that you're after. These things are all very different on race day than they are in a shop scenario. But if you want to be a race mechanic, then get into biking. I mean, you got to ride, you got to get to know the people involved, get to know your local shop, preferably work at the shop. But ultimately, you're not going to be a race mechanic if you don't go to the clinic. I mean, that's that's a big deal. You don't have to go to the clinic in order to be a mechanic, but you're not going to learn the necessary information unless you go. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm thinking even bigger picture just about the industry in general and, and you know, the profession of bicycle mechanic. I mean, what do you think about that in the States? I mean, that's a big question, but some people are like, it's hard to make a career out of being a bicycle mm-hmm. mechanic. Like, is it a career question mark? But it's one of the probably the most integral positions in a bicycle retail store. You know, just mm-hmm. your thoughts on making a career as a bicycle mechanic in general coming, you know, from your point of view. It's definitely tough to make the decision to be a career bicycle mechanic these days. I can understand how difficult it is if you're 17, 18, 19, 25 and you're starting to make some of these calls about how do you, you know, what direction do you want your life to go? A career of, you know, as a bike mechanic is a difficult one to make. I certainly accept that. It was easier for me years ago because I knew that I love bike. This is what I wanted to do. And it was pretty easy for me to figure out that as long as I had very, very modest needs and goals in personal life, that I could be a career bike mechanic. There are very few people that get rich in this business. So you kind of have to just make that commitment that this is what you're going to do as opposed to going out and making money in life. There are fewer opportunities, it seems like these days, for career mechanics. Shops don't want to, and understandably so, shops don't want to pay premium prices for mechanics with 15, 20, 30 years experience. It's a lot easier to just pay a high school kid that's going to stick around for a year or two. I understand that philosophy, but it does make it difficult for people to end up in this business after 30 years. That's a lot. I wish I had the magic answers to those. (laughs) It's a lot to break apart because I remember when running my own store, it's like you want to pay premium dollar, but you also you know want to be efficient. And it's there's a lot of considerations. And it's such a One of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on the podcast today, because I wanted our retail listeners to hear from a mechanic's point of view. And I also wanted mechanics to learn from another mechanic. And I usually, you know, I was telling you off air before we started, I usually script out the podcast a little bit more and have a better idea of where we're going to go. But with you, because I love how you naturally always just, I don't know, the conversation unfolds. I thought we'd just let it do that. So, okay. So how did you go from working as a mechanic at the retail level to deciding you wanted to open your own service course called I Fix Bikes and why specifically did you decide that? So I was in New York at the time, just life took me to New York city. Me and a friend moved to New York and uh, just kind of on a whim figuring we'd be able to get jobs. And we did just again, one of the magical aspects of being a bike mechanic is you are employable anywhere in the country. So I kind of took that perspective and and moved to New York. Eventually, after a season or two, I developed a reputation, if you will, of being friendly towards the racing scene. Bike racers, at least in New York, are not generally welcome in shops. 
for whatever reason, you know, I won't go into that. That's because that's up to them to decide. But shops don't like to deal with bike racers. And I didn't mind. It was okay to me. I didn't mind working with racers. I didn't mind working on race equipment. Before long, individual riders were coming to seek me out. Whichever shop I happened to be located in at the time, people were coming to find me because they knew I would actually take care of them and not give them bullshit attitude. So after a while of realizing that people in the city are seeking me out personally, Right. So maybe I should do something to capitalize on that. And, you know, that turned into a couple of conversations with guys that were running amateur teams. And then, okay, next thing I know, I'm operating a service course out of my apartment in lower Manhattan. I quickly ran out of room in my apartment for the bikes I was working on. So (laughs) I teamed up with a a coach in the area who I'd, I'd known and worked with before. And he and I, rented a workspace. He had half of it for his coaching and training services. And I had the other half for the mechanical service course aspect. And and it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. A really dynamic spot. I loved visiting you there and the location was excellent. Just picking- Yeah, it was great having a bike shop on the fifth floor of an office building in midtown Manhattan. That was, so that was pretty cool. Fun. You get up there and you just feel transported. It's awesome. And it feels like a special spot. The energy mm-hmm. is awesome. For our listeners who are mechanics, you know, going back to the racers seeking you out. So for those listening who have roles, you know, working in a service, maybe they're their service manager right now, maybe they're, you know, looking to better their own career, thinking about why people sought you out. Was it because of your training, because of your ability? And how would our listeners maybe, you know, take their skills to the next level? Anything you can speak on there? Well, I guess terms like next level are kind of generic. So I would use terms more like define what you want. You know, do you want to be a race mechanic? Then undertake a course of action to get there. Do you want to be your store's service manager? Undertake that course. You want to own your own shop someday. That's a different path. You know, just be on the path that leads you to where you want to go. If you want to be a race mechanic, then It helps if you're involved in the racing scene. Whether you race yourself or not, go to the races. Go hang out in the pit areas. Get to know the guys. Let them see your face. You know, let them know who you are. Hand out business cards, you know, whatever the equivalent is. Get your name and face known by the people that you're soliciting. That was pretty much it for me. I was working in a shop that kind of catered towards higher-end clientele anyway, not necessarily racers, just, you know, the higher end. And I was a more visible person in that store. And so people got to know me. And then when I left that scenario, people still remembered who I was. I'd love to say that it was all because of talent, but in reality, it was because I probably looked weird enough that they remember my face. I love that you said, you know, you further define next level to defining what the person is specifically looking for. And you have said race mechanic on a couple times here. And just to qualify that, a race mechanic then is different from a standard mechanic at a bicycle store. And then the second part of that question was, would you suggest that bicycle retailers have a race mechanic on their staff? I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. It certainly doesn't hurt, but these are very different disciplines. Yeah. I mean, they really are. Just because you're a good shop mechanic doesn't mean you know what a bike racer needs and vice versa. You know, a Cervelo is a very different bike than a Raleigh hybrid. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
the same guy can do some work on them. But look, if we're talking about fine tuning and getting the last little bit out of it, you know, these are just very different disciplines. So should you have a race mechanic on staff? Not necessarily, unless you're a shop that deals with race equipment and racers. But most folks that buy road bikes in a family style bike shop don't spend a lot of time in their 5311. Mm -hmm. So that's just a universe that isn't really experienced by most folks that end up buying that same bike. And all of the forces that are acting on a bike underneath me or underneath a seasoned pro, you know, the forces are different acting on that bike. And so we got to be able to understand how to manipulate it for that aspect. Yeah. And just, um, um, I'm coming back a blast of the past. I remember when I was, you know, working with you and I had the awesome fortune of having you work on my equipment. It was like, you were able to help me for that brief moment of time, get the very everything out of my bike that I didn't even know it was capable. And I guess for our listeners, that for me is how I would qualify, like the difference of a race mechanic, like a mechanic could tune my bike all day long, but you were like, well, if you want to do this, you should do this because this is going to be, you know, you were able to help me get every ounce of energy out of that bike. If you want. (laughs) Yeah. That's always been one of the worst parts about being a mechanic is, you know, dealing with the person that rides the bike. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. <laughs> I used to joke about that. I don't really make that joke anymore because I kind of get in trouble for it now. But I used to joke that, you know, my loyalty is not to the rider. My loyalty is to the machine. I'm going to make this machine work the best that it can. And it's going to be up to you to get the most out of it. Yeah, there's so much here. Okay. So is there, you know, you've worked at, you know, several shops, you've owned your own. Is there anything that has really helped you in your career as a mechanic? as you've gone along? Is there anything that you would say if someone's working as a mechanic really wants to make a career out of this? Is there anything that you would say, is it working with other qualified mechanics? Yeah, that's kind of where I was just about to go is having an open mind to all of the different possibilities that exist. I don't want to just harp on the difference between race and a shop mechanic scenarios, but if you only know this one style or this one method, you've only worked with one mechanic and he taught you one way of doing it. You've worked in one shop that deals with one brand. Your overall capabilities will be compromised. You've got to expand all of your, you know, all of the options available to you, road bikes, mountain bikes, hybrids, e-bikes, unicycles, for crying out loud. All of this stuff affects your knowledge and abilities to work on the other items. And so having an open mind towards all different types of bikes and what they bring to the table will expand your ability to understand what's going on with the one bike that's in your stand right now. So it's one thing to say, yes, work with a bunch of different mechanics and they can teach you different things. Sure. But if you're not open to the idea in the first place, you're not going to learn anything from that guy. Yeah. I love the fact that every mechanic I've worked with has taught me something, whether they've been, you know, a 30 year seasoned pro or rookie that started last week. Everybody that I work with shows me some new little technique or has some different perspective that adds to my total library here. I would love to say that's a universal concept among mechanics, but unfortunately it's not. There's a lot of us who think we already know everything. Yeah. And, you know, in conversations with retailers about how we continue to educate mechanics, you know, on all the new technology coming down, and there's a lot of YouTube videos out there. Since we're here, could you speak in your words, what role you think the retailer, the shop manager, the owner of the store has in 
continuing education for mechanics? Well, I guess I'll phrase it this way. Having clear, specific goals for the shop as a whole, for the service department of that shop, for each individual mechanic, you know, having goals, actual tangible things to achieve and goals to meet. Because without these things, we're all just kind of groping around in the dark. And that's how people start to think they know more than they do because nobody's correcting their mistakes. Yeah, I guess I'll just go back to defining where you're at now and where you want to be. Do you have certain monetary goals? Does your shop want to do X dollars in labor this year? What do you need to do to get to that point? Do you have a certain educational level? Are there certain jobs that you want your mechanics to be able to do? It used to be one of the gauges for whether or not you're a good shop mechanic is how long does it take you to overhaul a campy shifter? (laughs) Well, it takes me 45 minutes and I'm going to need to read the manual. Okay, well, you're not going to work in my shop then. Or sure, give me five minutes and a five millimeter and we're good. You know, that kind of stuff was the gauge as to whether or not you're a good mechanic, but we can't really use that kind of thing too much anymore. Have goals about your shop does a lot of e-bikes. So make sure that your mechanics are Bosch and Shimano and all the other companies certified on the equipment that you have in the store kind of getting away from the original question. That no, you had I think this is perfect. Life. No, it's so, because you can say, you know, we want all the mechanics, it's clear goals, clearly defined goals. And that can even be broken down into how much time it takes to do a certain repair. And the education piece, I mean, if you're saying everyone needs to be Bosch certified, well, then everyone knows they need to go get Bosch certified. So if you, as a retailer, owner, manager, you can definitely just give these clear goals and then, you know, each person helps to meet those. I guess that's a fantastic answer. Yeah. I mean, a shop needs to start off being able to service every aspect of the bikes that they sell. At least that's my opinion. I think they need to be able to do that and then can expand outwards from there. I mean, it's one thing if your shop doesn't sell any Bosch branded e-bike systems, well, then it's not critical that the mechanics in your shop be Bosch certified, right? Although there are going to be bikes from your community that come in that have Bosch. So it's probably a good idea to have that anyway, but start off dealing with what you do and expand out from there. Yeah. You know, being a mechanic is a skilled trade. It's an art form. You know, I would consider it. I'm sure you could, you know, talk more on that, but it's interesting to have those skills, to possess that skill and be in a position where you might be working with a customer who maybe has a different thought about the repair that's needed or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you before being authoritative, if you would, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, so yeah. any tips there, you know, if the listeners are in the position where they are writing up the repair, they are that skilled mechanic, you know, and just in how we communicate with customers, because that could be something that, you know, I think you have to have that authoritative stance. Right? Yeah, I guess I've got a couple of different paths to answering that question. First off, don't lie. Don't lie to your customer. They would always rather hear, you know, I don't know that, but let's find out. Then some bullshit answer that they know is a lie because you can't cover up the fact that you're spewing drivel right now. So don't lie to them. Okay. Just say, I don't know the answer, but let's find out. That's easy. Okay. The second thing is, look, ultimately we're kind of talking about service writing here as opposed to service production. And one of the things that I've slowly figured out over the years is service writing is a sales role. Okay. It's not a mechanic role. It's a sales role. Yes. The service writer needs to have enough knowledge of bicycles and the specific components involved to be able to assess problems, 
But more importantly than that, the service writer is the one that is the face-to-face contact with the customer, and that requires its own skill and talent. I mean, that is its own art form, is interacting with the customer in a way that allows them to leave happy. One of the things that made me (laughs) successful in New York and allows you to use terms like authoritative (laughs) is I'm not a bullshit kind of guy. All right. I'll tell you straight up that you fucked up your bike and here's what I got to do to fix it. Okay. That is fine for the bike racer who just needs his bike to work right because he's got a race tomorrow morning, but that doesn't really work too well at a family bike shop where you're dealing with folks or just going for a cruise around the neighborhood with the kids. Okay. So I certainly accept that. And that's where the sales technique comes in. When convincing somebody to spend a couple of hundred bucks tuning up their bike, getting a new chain, maybe getting new tires, whatever, on a bike that they just bought from you a couple of years ago, the ability to get them to say yes happily is the same talent that it took to get them to buy the bike in the first place. It is. So having a salesman or a sales-oriented person as your service writer is critical towards what I will call success. You know, ultimately we define that differently, but if you want to have a successful service department, your service writer has got to be a salesman of service, not just a mechanic who is fine talking. Mark, is there any disconnect or loss of efficiency? And I fully agree with you that that there needs to be a salesperson in that role. But if the person who is doing the service write-ups, maybe when the bike gets to the mechanic and the mechanic has the bike on the stand, is there any time wasted there? Or is there any way that we could make the translation of what the person riding up the bike, now what the mechanic is seeing, can we make that smoother? Is there any spot there that retailers could make sure that we're not losing efficiency in the two trying to translate what each other is doing, you know? Well, there's certainly not a you know magic formula for that. At least I don't believe so. But the service writer and the mechanic or mechanics definitely have to be on the same page. Okay. They've got to be able to communicate, whether it's speaking to each other verbally or just writing out appropriate notes that get the point across. In order to take the efficiency level to an acceptable level, then you know, they've got to be able to communicate. And sometimes that means being friends outside of work so that the two of you can communicate in ways that, well, you know how friends communicate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not so friendly, but it gets the point across, right? And ultimately, that's why I say, I'm going to push back a little bit on something you said. I don't think that service writing is the role of a salesman, but it is a sales position. So you still have to be knowledgeable of the science of the bicycle in order to write appropriate notes, in order to sell the appropriate service in order to communicate to the mechanic the end result that you sold to the customer. And that just takes time and practice and two people who are on the same wavelength. And that's not easy. That takes effort. There are plenty of mechanics and service riders that aren't on the same page. And it does affect the abilities of those shops to thrive and proliferate. I definitely think that it is much more efficient to have a service writer separate from the service production. These are two very different roles within the shop. And just because 
I'm capable of taking a bike in and writing down on a sheet of paper, tune up plus chain, you know, it doesn't mean that that's the most efficient or effective way of doing it. I use words like efficient and effective. These are tough ones because ultimately it comes down to what are you trying to accomplish? You know, as a service department or as a shop, are you trying to make money within your service department? Or is your service department one of the tools at your disposal to help your sales department thrive? You know, these are very different perspectives. Everybody wants to take care of the bikes that they sold, but not every bike shop wants to make a business of doing tune-ups on 30-year-old bikes from some other state that the customer moved into town with. You know, not everybody wants to do that. There are a lot of shops that won't work on e-bikes. There are a lot of shops that won't take in tandems or recumbents or trikes. You know, I understand this, but at the same time, you're making a decision about which of these paths you're going down. If you want to be an efficient and profitable service department, then efficiency is that word. And efficiency isn't so much just crack the whip and make sure that guys are always working and not taking too long of a coffee break. It's setting up systems in place so that you can achieve that desired end result. One of the ways that the shop that I'm currently at, we separate, completely separate service writing from service production. There's some logic behind that. There's a tendency that we all have, and I'm certainly not going to say it's a law or a rule or just whatever, man. There's just a tendency that we all have to look at our workload with dread, especially at this time of year. You know, when I go back, today's my day off. When I go back into the shop tomorrow, I've got a stack, you know, three feet high of work orders that are coming up over the next few weeks. All right. Although that's in some ways, that's nice job security. Right. But it's also kind of a dread to look, oh, God, there's so much work at this time of year. So if I'm working the counter and somebody comes in with a tune up, again, a tendency that we all have to let how busy we are influence the service that we write up. Mm. It's not uncommon to write service a little bit light when you're super busy. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, this bike could use this, it could use that, it could use this, but you know what? I'm going to write it up for a basic tune up and just we're going to get through this. You know, that's a horrible thing to say, but every mechanic is that's hearing this right now is nodding their head going, yeah, I know what he means. Shop owners hate that, of course. And that's exactly why we separate these two things. The service writer doesn't do the service. So he doesn't have in the back of his head, oh my God, this bike is going to be a pain in the ass to work on. Oh, so I'm going to ride it up light. He's not doing that. He's trying to write up as much as possible because he's a salesman. You know, He's a salesman at heart and he's looking at writing the biggest ticket that's practical instead of the mechanic doing the work who's trying to make his workload as easy and simple as possible. Right. So the end result is the service writer will write up more service than the mechanic. That's just how it works out. Seems like such a simple thing. You well, know. The other thing that it does is <laughs> it means that I can sit down at my bench and get to work and not be interrupted every five minutes with a customer walking in, those horrible customers interrupting me. It means I can get to work and stay at work. And I think I can crank out twice as many tune-ups in a day if I'm not the one answering the phone and changing that quick flat or you know, talking to the customer about their tune-up and debating with them whether or not they need a new chain when they're at point eight. It makes us as a department much more effective. 
A service writer can write up service for three or four guys, but those same three or four guys trying to write their own service aren't going to do that. Yeah, it's such a hot topic, Margaret. I'm so happy that you are thoughtful enough to present it in this way because as many retailers are looking at their service center, you know, with shrinking margins now, the service center is a spot that we're like, okay, we can run this profitable. And thoughts such as, do we separate the mechanics from the customers? Do we have online service center scheduling? Like all these questions are coming up, like looking at ways we can be more efficient. Service rates, you know, how much we charge, right? So I love just, it seems very simple what you're saying, but it's something I think we overlook and we do. Yeah, full tune. I don't even want to work on that one. (laughs) Keep that bike out of here. You know what I mean? But the person writing up who's not not actually doing the work, they don't care. I mean, they just want to make it the highest ticket and best for the shop as possible. So- Yeah. And ultimately that's the best because that's for everybody. You have to have a certain amount of trust, of course, that your service writer is not, is writing appropriate service. But again, if the service writer who is a salesman is better equipped to sell new brake pads than me who might stammer through the presentation or otherwise not get the appropriate point across. And then the customer doesn't get new brake pads and their bike doesn't stop well. You know, the end result is a dedicated service rider is going to make sure that the bike works better. Have you signed up for Ride It Daily Extended Service yet? What are you waiting for? It's the extended service plan for your customers that pays you your shop rate for extended service and warranty claims. Rides is only available to NBDA members and it's only available at NBDA.com. Mark, going back to this bigger picture way of how to make your service center a profitable business, if we're going to look at it that we want to really draw profit, you know, you ran a specific business that was profitable based on just servicing. Any other tips that you would offer to retailers when thinking about their service center, you know, as a source of revenue? It's easy to say hire skilled mechanics, you know, have talented people around you. That's a simple thing to say. It's a lot hard to execute that. And I'm trying to find the least offensive way of saying, show your mechanics more respect than you may think they deserve, because pretty soon you're going to need the knowledge that they've acquired over that time period. There may be very basically talented and skillful mechanics that enter the business and stay here for two or three years. And just when they're getting to that point where you're really confident in them, they realize that, you know what, I can go be an electrician for a lot more money. So showing your mechanics respect earlier on will help encourage them to stick around in this business longer. The only way to, you know, there's that old, uh, what's the old saying? The best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago. The only way you get to be in this business for 30 years is that you didn't get out after five years. And that's what everybody's doing. There's not a lot of mechanics that are willing to stick around past that three, four, five-year range. And I'll use a generic term of respect. There's not a lot of respect shown to mechanics at that five-year point. So if you can show them that respect early, you'll be able to build a 30-year veteran. So what does that look like, Martha? What are we doing? Are we working in unison to take their ideas to make our service center run more efficient? Are we giving them some sense of ownership or how can we show that respect? That Well, in my opinion, 
you know, I won't speak for what respect means to everybody, but to me, respect means honesty and setting realistic, clear goals based on what both of our observations about practicality are. It's easy to say, hey, we want to increase revenue next year and, you know, things like that. But give me something tangible to shoot for. If you give me a goal that I can dedicate my season towards achieving, then at the end of the year, we can both evaluate how it happened. To me, that's respect. To some people, money is respect. To other people, a title with no authority is respect. Mm -hmm. I had a boss years ago that came to me one day, just pulled me aside and just said, look, man, you're doing a fantastic job. What can we do for you? You know, I want to do something nice for you just because things are going so well. And I said, hey, you know what? I'm a Yankees fan and I'd love to have some nicer seats to the Yankees game instead of the nosebleed stuff that I always go to because that's what I can afford. So he happened to have some connections and he managed to get me some right behind the dugout seats. Sweet. Okay. Yes. And that, I tell you what, man, I will fall on a sword for that dude any day because of that one little act. You know? Yeah. So that was the thing that I needed from him to dedicate myself to whatever that guy needed, you know, and it it was awesome. And I I really appreciated that. And I love him to this day. Yeah. But not everybody has that, you know, maybe again, for some people, it's just straight up money for others. It's, you know, maybe it is a ownership stake in the company for some, maybe we just got to realize that, look, I'm going to be in this business for five to seven years. Let's do the best we can. Let's spend the first half of it building a reputation. And then the second half, training the next generation. As long as we're on the same page and we're honest with each other about it, that can be the respect that they need. You know, but whatever that issue is with that person, give them that thing. Yeah. Show them that respect. Just having a great conversation and setting goals together and going after them as a team. Mm -hmm. And it shows you value the person so much. And then the Mm -hmm. reward can come in different types of forms. Okay. Let's, I know I'm jumping a little bit, but you know, the last two years have really been pivotal and we have now service center scheduling online. We have apps and integrations, uh, new software like HubTiger and whatnot, paperless systems now. Any thoughts about the way technology is affecting the service center, like pros, cons that you're seeing? I'm always in favor of, you know, of technology. I mean, that's basically what we deal with every, you know, every day is, is technology that's not designed to otherwise advance humanity. This is recreation. You know, even if it's transportation, it's not necessary. So everything that we do is for the fun of it, as I guess is what I'm saying. So I'm always fond of all kinds of technology, especially as it comes pertains to being able to fix your bike in a more timely and effective and efficient manner. We use uh, the shop I'm at now as a Trek dealer and we use their Ascend system and it's, you know, it's fantastic. It's not flawless, but it really is a good system and I'm a big fan of it. There are obviously every system has its potential pitfalls. I'm a little wary of the practicality or how to manage customers making their own appointments online. I guess there are a lot of several potential difficulties in having client schedule of their own, but scheduling appointments ahead of time is always a good idea, I think. From a mechanics point of view, you know, as the shop owner, service manager, we're always looking at different things we can do to, you know, be more efficient. And this could be with considering software, but as a mechanic who's working 
with the bike and using the software, you know, after the write-up has been done or whatever, is there anything that you're noticing that's like, oh no, you know, watch out for this, you know, we're not getting this critical information or this could be done better. You know, is there anything that we should be aware of just from a mechanics point of view? Boy, actually, I'm going to say the opposite. I think that the current electronical systems or the computer systems that we're using now make all of that stuff a lot easier than it was in the past. Gone are the days of trying to take notes on a walking bird tag. It's so much easier to just type out the information you want and you can put a lot more information on a computer screen than you can in a, in a limited amount of space that you can't read my handwriting anyway when you're trying to convey the information to the customer later on. I love it. So yeah, from that standpoint, I'm definitely in favor of everything that we're doing. Awesome. Are there any real problems? Well, I don't, it's, that's hard to say. There's no system I'm sure that's perfect. Everybody who's used Ascend has aspects of it they like and that they don't like. Anybody who's used Lightspeed has parts of it they like, parts that they don't like. There are other systems that'll fall into the same category. As long as, long as we can get the job done, I think that's all fine. I'm going to hang you here, Mark, and ask you since I have you right here. This is great then. Great to report that we're getting more information on the bike. It's very easy then as a mechanic to go ahead and proceed. What if we, when we're doing the write-up, if we're failing to get the customer to, okay, maybe X amount of dollars over the quote, like what if then as you as the mechanic, you have the bike, you now have to reach back out to the customer or, you know, is it better to get that ability for the repair to go above the quote, like just thoughts there. So we don't have to waste time reaching back out to customer or anything that we could do there. Yeah. I mean, ultimately that's things like that will be up to just what your store's policy is on the subject matter. I've worked at shops where anytime you brought a bike in for service, you left giving the okay to spend up to a certain amount above the quote. Other shops, not one single dime above the quote without customer permission. So whatever your store's policy is going to be, you know, that's fine. Just stick to your policy. Uh, when you do separate the service writing from the service production, then getting that okay one way or another, I think is critical towards that efficient issue. Because if I have to stop in the middle of my tune-up and call the customer to get an okay to put new brake pads on because the service rider missed the rear pads being ground down, you know, that's going to screw up my efficient flow for the day. So I definitely, if it's not going to be written up perfectly, then having an appropriate, you know, buffer certainly helps. But as far as, you know, which path you take, you know, as long as the customer picks up the bike and they're not pissed off that you charge them too much money, I think you're fine. Yeah. I want to go now over to talk about service center pricing and labor rates. Mm -hmm. A lot of retailers are looking at what they're doing right now as far as offering packages, offering <laughs> a la carte services. So I want to talk like in general and pricing labor rates, your thoughts about where we're at, you know, in the industry and could they go up or down? And then is doing packages a good thing, you know, as a mechanic? are we, you know, missing things or including, you know, just your thoughts about that. So, so let's start with just our labor rate pricing in general. What are your thoughts? Why don't I even bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Labor rates are a tough one. I'm going to say something controversial right now, just so that you're aware. To citizens of the United States, 
Oh boy. <laughs> Bicycles are toys. They're not pieces of machinery. They are not critical equipment necessary for their life function. They are toys. So with that in mind, it's really difficult to get most people to spend real money to maintain a toy. That's just a difficult thing. Now, obviously, not every single human being in this country views their bike as a toy, but for the most part, yes. Even the guy who spent 10,000 bucks on his Pinarello doesn't want to put a new chain on it in 3,000 miles. You know, he's going to do that begrudgingly, but yet it's a critical part of the maintenance process. Rates, since people don't want to spend good money maintaining a toy, the tendency is to keep rates low so that they will spend, you know, slightly less, but end up with a toy that works. I'm not so much a fan of that prospect. Okay. I think that that's one of the reasons that you know, we perpetuate that whole bike as a toy philosophy by artificially, if you will, keeping rates low. I'm all for determine what your shop needs to operate, including paying your skilled mechanics a reasonable rate, and then deciding your rates based off of that. I know that sounds simple and that's what we're supposed to do anyway, but that's not really how it happens in most shops. Most shops just go shop around town and then, you know, be in the same ballpark as everybody else in town. That What was kind of neat about having this, my service course in New York was I was the opposite. Okay. I had to be the most expensive guy in town. That's what they expected. So as soon as I raised my rates at the end of the year, other shops would raise their rates to match mine. And then I would have to raise mine again because I can't be on the same page. And that's one of the ways that you make money in this business, right? Is you charge an appropriate amount of money for the service that you perform. Mark, have you had a customer ever bring their bike to you, see how much your repair rates were, and then leave with their bike? I mean, I don't... Well, I can't say that they walked in and said, what? You charge $20 for this? That's it. I'm leaving. I'm sure that that's happened, but... It's certainly understandable for someone to come to the decision, and ultimately this was what I was trying to get at with the pricing issue, is everything has a lifespan and everything has an amount of money that's reasonable to keep it going. If you spend 139 bucks on a bike four years ago, it's not reasonable for you to bring that bike to me and spend $150 on a tune-up with no parts at this point. That's just not a reasonable thing to do, mm-hmm. right? And we can continue to march towards the gray area. You spent 500 bucks three years ago. Is that $150 reasonable? Or would it be more reasonable with the proliferation of used bikes these days to trade that bike in now? And instead of spending that 150 bucks maintaining your old bike, spend that 150, add another 50 bucks to it, then take your trade in. And now you got a brand new bike. Yeah. Is that the more reasonable way to go? So that's another area where the service rider, you know, mm-hmm. the salesmanship value of the service rider can come into play. Sir, it looks like the total bill to get your bike back up and running is going to approach what the sale price was when you bought this bike a few years ago. So perhaps a better way to spend that money would be to take a look at a different option. You know, rather than spending all of this money maintaining this bike now, and I'm not saying we garbage these things, the used bike market is a real thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the company I work for, we do a lot with used bikes. That's great for everybody. 
I'm just thinking there has to be some psychology that goes in. Like if I was the mechanic and a repair shows up on my work stand and, you know, they're charging $40 for a full tune that let's say takes me an hour. I'm just throwing out randomness. I think I'd be pretty freaking like they only think that I'm worth $40 an hour, right? There has to be some psychology just in the mechanics head about it. Well, absolutely. And this is one of those things that comes back to both that respect issue and as well as what are your goals for the department? You know, a $40 tune-up, when you pay me, let's say, half that amount per hour, (laughs) you know, you're stating right there in that one job that the goal of your service department is to act as a conduit towards the sale of product. You're not saying that you want to be a profitable service department if your rates are that low. You're saying that you want the service department to be a cookie towards getting people to come into the store and hopefully buy a new bike. Again, that's a totally legitimate way of going about it. I'm not trying to say that it's not, as long as everybody understands that's what you're doing. As long as your mechanic doesn't think that he's worth 40 bucks an hour, you know, what he does is only worth $40 an hour. If he knows and fully understands that for lack of a better term here, he's being used as a tool (laughs) to sell a new bike. Like as long as we're on the page with that, that's cool. Okay. The consideration for service center menus where we're looking at packages with Mm -hmm. all-part services. Is there a better way for retailers here when they're making considerations, which way to go? Well, I think your market needs to determine whether you push tune-up packages or you push individual things. As a mechanic, I prefer the packages because it does allow me a little bit more freedom to do what's necessary to get the bike rolling. If it comes in for a derailleur adjustment, but the brakes rubbing, I got a decision to make as a human being and as an employee, you know, do I let this bike go out the door with the brakes rubbing because they only want to pave? They are only being charged for a shift adjustment. That's a tough thing for me as a human being and as a bike rider, that's a difficult decision to make. But at the same time, if I spend the time to do the brake adjustment and end up not charging them for it, I'm screwing my boss. So I like tune-up packages because they give me more freedom to make the bike work right. Mm -hmm. That being said, if your community does not want that, if your community wants only what they want, well, then you cater that, you know? Yeah. Put the blinders on and do what's on the work order. Thinking about risk now, you know, risk and liability as the mechanic is the one touching the bikes. There's so much there. You know, any thoughts that go through your mind on managing risk? You know, I know some service centers have checklists to ensure things were done. Just anything that you would offer in that regard? I think that this is another one of those areas where separating the service writing from the service production helps because it allows that specialty focus and it diminishes the interruptions and the pauses in action that can a lot of times lead towards that unfortunate accidental mistake. But ultimately, we all make mistakes. You know, I still make them and I feel bad about it and I expect to get called out every single time. And it's a shitty thing to say, but it's my boss that gets to pay the price for my mistake. And, uh, you know, that's another area where showing me the respect earlier on in the process means I take this whole thing more seriously and more personally so that 
I'm not just looking out for the well-being of the bike. You know, I'm looking out for my boss's bottom line. And these are all things that cause me to pay more attention and more focus. The liability thing from a legal standpoint, you know, we all shops got to have insurance. And ultimately, as the mechanic, the individual mechanic, I'm not really the one at risk for liability other than nobody wants to harm anybody. At least I hope not. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that is so, you know, just being true partners and making sure the distractions are held to a minimum. So you can focus that separation, Mm -hmm. as you said, some retailers allow their mechanics, their service center to be tipped. Others don't. I mean, how do you feel about that? You know, some point of sale systems allow a tip for the service center. You think that's a nice thing? Do you think that, you know, retailers should go ahead and open that up if they're considering it or it is a skilled trade? Just, I mean, selfishly, the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I guess I'm not convinced that that's a big enough topic to warrant having it integrated into the computer system. If I do something spectacular on a guy's bike, usually they don't know. You, you know, right. most of the time, those conversations are between mechanics. Holy crap, dude, did you see what I just did here? Customers don't know too much about that. They may be appreciative, but that usually shows itself in the form of six pack of a PBR or something. What about that though, Mark? If we are separating the mechanics, you know, you can be efficient. What about, you know, there is something about that relationship. You know, we want to have the relationship with the retailer, but also it is nice to have the relationship with the mechanic too. You know, like Mark works on my bike. Like, how do we maintain that relationship? Do we throw like meet the mechanics days or like how to, or maybe use social media to be like meet Mark, like, but who knows if Mark's going to be working on my bike. So there's a little level of disconnect there, right? There is. And the style of shop that you're working in, the, st- the well, mechanic of the whole process flows you know, can determine these things. A small mom and pop shop, when the customer walks in the door and meets everybody that works in the store within five steps of the door, that's an environment that really does breed getting to know the people and taking, you know, and building a relationship in that way. But that doesn't really encourage high volume. Mm -hmm. Higher volume can't really be as personal. It can be personal to the contact, but not to the whole process. So I don't know. Do we need to institute a system where like restaurants where everybody shares tips? I don't know. I just don't think that it's really that big of an issue. I think I've had a, although I'm not out front working directly with customers, I have had a couple of customers that have specifically asked, hey, my bike works great. Who's the person that did it? I just want to tell them thanks. You know, I've had a few of those, as we all have. And honestly, having someone that I don't know say, thank you, my bike works great. That does more for me than, you know, than a six pack. Yeah. Yeah. It's just getting that thanks. Yeah. And every shop is so different. You're right. It's a hard one to Mm -hmm. answer. I'm really giving you some tough ones today, huh? (laughs) Well, you know, I guess the other thing too, is rather than make tips a thing, I'd rather just be compensated appropriately mm-hmm. so that people don't feel a need to tip you know, for any desire to tip. I want to legitimately be able to say, oh, no, no, really, please. It was my pleasure. Thank you. But I don't require this thing from you. You know, I want to be able to honestly say that instead of, oh, no, don't give me that $5 bill that I'm going to take anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, tips are nice, but 
we're not working for tips. We better not be working for tips. Yeah. It's such an integral role, you know, in the bicycle retail store these days. I mean, there's been so much in the last couple of years and a lot of brands now purchasing up stores, a lot of brands selling online and sometimes, you know, then facilitating the pickup at a store or even shipping direct to consumer, the future of the industry you know, what are your thoughts just like in general on the way things are going and, you know, the topics that I just outlined? So one, the largest umbrella topic that I love about this entire industry is the level of creativity involved with everything that we do from bike design all the way down to the creativity on my end in, in order to needed to make it work right. Okay. I'm a fan of the creativity in the advertising. I'm a fan of the creativity in shop layout. All of this creativity is fascinating and enjoyable to me. Along with that is the creativity necessary to roll with all of these incredible changes that have been going on the last couple of seasons. There's very little that's been stagnant about this industry in the last, well, I'll speak for 35 years. You know, everything changes every year. And so to think that we can conduct business the same way in the face of everything else changing around us, to me, that's just kind of foolish. So we all need to be open to every aspect of this, you know, every segment of the business that's going to change anyway. When it comes to shop manufacturers selling direct to consumer, picking up in the store, I'm fine with that. I'm totally good with it. How much time did a salesperson spend? Therefore, how much shop money was spent making that sale? Zero. Mm -hmm. Did the shop make some profit off of that sale? Yes, they did. I realize that that's coming from a mechanic, not a shop owner. But the end result is we made money and we didn't put any effort into it. So that's a win for me. Mm -hmm. It's up to us then when they pick up the bike at the store to win them over so that they come back to us for all of their other needs, right? You know, one of the things that I learned very early on in my career that really stuck with me from Chris Cagle, one of the things that he tried to pass on, a fundamental principle that he wanted to convey was another bike shop is not our enemy. Our enemy is golf and racquetball, boating and jet skis. The things that take people's time and money away from bicycling, that's the enemy. If people choose bicycles, it's our responsibility to be the shop that they select over Bob's Bikerama down the street. Okay, That's our obligation is to be the one that they select. So somebody buying a bike direct from the manufacturer and picking it up in our store, it's now our obligation to turn them into a customer. I guess that's how I see that. Mark, you're giving me goosebumps. Chris is, uh, thank you for sharing that and spot on, spot on. Okay. In your mind, you know, what could we focus on then as a, as an industry, you know, is it this just keeping these people, you know, keeping people selecting cycling? Is that where stop being so, you know, be more creative, be more flexible, work more collaboratively. Like I'm throwing things out. I don't know. The flexibility is a huge thing, in my opinion. Don't be stuck just because it worked last week or last year. 
doesn't mean it's going to work today or tomorrow or next year. If you're one of those who thinks I found the best way to do it and therefore we're going to do it this way, well, you know what? That's going to work for a couple of seasons before it doesn't work anymore. And good luck to you after that. You got to be able to roll with the punches. It's one thing to have a plan, but it's something else to stick rigidly to that plan and never deviate from it. If there was one desire that I had for the industry as a whole, I wish we would be more like every other retail style businesses. You know, it's funny to me, a little game I like to play whenever I go to any other retail store, you know, I'm going to the pet store to buy cat food. You know, the bag says $29.99. You know what? I get up to the counter and I'm going to say, I'm going to give you 27 bucks for this. I mean, this is stupid. You know, why does our industry do those kind of things? Okay. No other industry does. I just wish we would act a little bit more like the rest of the retail world. Stop thinking we're special in that regard. A lot of bicycle retailers listen to the podcast. And I just want to ask you, you know, another question here for a retailer, you know, shop owner who might go into their store today, might walk into their store tomorrow. Maybe they're looking at their service center efficiency, maybe thinking of their mechanics, maybe in a slightly different, you know, maybe some considerations from listening to our podcast and they want to go in and they want to take a fresh breath, maybe implement some change. Where would you say that they start? What could that be with that? There are two main components that I always try to keep an eye on and always quite often come back to and remind myself of. One is simple process flow. Take a bicycle from the time it walks in the door to the time it leaves the door and follow it through. Whether it's whether you actually do this with a literal work order that somebody brought in or you just role play, follow that bike through its process and see how hideously inefficient that process is. Where you're storing the bike versus where the repair stand is versus where the service writing area is versus where the parts are located versus where the bike wash arena is. Where does that bike move and how can you cut down the number of steps? How can you cut down the number of different people that touch it? Accessing your parts inventory from last year and see what you sold as a predictor of what you're going to sell this season so that you have the parts in stock and don't necessarily have to order chains and cassettes and bar tape. Give an honest, legitimate look at your process flow. Now, the second aspect there is walk in the door with customer's eyes. And go through that same process flow from the eyes of the customer, not yours. Mm. Stand on the other side of the counter and see what they see, hear what they hear, and feel what they're feeling when they have that conversation. Is the service writer an asshole like me who makes them feel bad about themselves? Or is the service writer a good salesman who taps back into that emotion that you felt when you bought the bike originally? Have the discipline to examine these processes regularly. And have the, you know, the open, honest communication with everyone in your department to continually improve these processes. And then when you hire a new mechanic, listen to what he says, because the shop he worked at before did this thing a different way, and it might be better for you guys to do it that way or some weird hybrid of the two. I was going to say you're a mechanic, right? You can also... Go in tomorrow. And if you have an idea for processes, share them, right? Like with your, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mechanics have egos. All right. We all, most of us think we know everything and nobody is going to tell me what to do. And so I certainly understand that it can be hard to hear suggestions. Part of the way that we 
learn to hear suggestions better is when our suggestions are heard. Mm. Right. I'm more likely to take advice from you when I know that you take advice from me occasionally. Again, you know, I suggest taking a look at the processes on a regular basis, but this requires that communication and that respect amongst employees and coworkers. You know, all these things have to be in place so that you set the conditions right for conducting these tests. Mm-hmm. You know, for examining the processes. If I don't feel respected and you, you come in and want to examine my processes, well, who the hell are you to, you know, to do that to me? So these things all kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. Like but ultimately, we shouldn't take these processes lightly. Just because the system that you employed three years ago worked three years ago doesn't mean that same system works now. Right. You know, three, five years ago, e-bikes were not a thing. Okay. So I didn't have to worry about accommodating my wash bay for a 65 pound bike. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't have to deal with that. We didn't have to deal with potentially lethal batteries you know, burning. Okay. This is stuff that we just didn't have to deal with a while ago, but yet these are things that we have to deal with now. And if we don't continue to review these processes, they end up getting shoved into the corner. That's going to affect the, the efficiency of the whole process. So don't be afraid to re-examine. I love it. I love it. Gosh, I feel like we could dive into so much. Like <laughs> we have, It's like, wow, time with Mark <laughs> goes by. Yeah. Like, when are we going to see each other? I think I'll have to come out to the lakes and visit you. Yeah, I do. You know, I got a couch you can crash on. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still cycling? Are you still riding? You know, when I moved to New York, whenever it was 20 years ago, I gave up car just because it's not practical to have one there. And I just never not got another car. So yeah, I either ride my bike everywhere or walk or hitchhike or whatever. I think I'd be letting our, you know, our industry down if I didn't ask you one more question here. You know, I knew we know we do have to wrap up soon. We are at a mechanic shortage, or I'm hearing a lot of retailers say they can't find qualified mechanics. So maybe we're bringing in some, you know, newer mechanics and trying to help them get started in the industry. Any tips, advice for retailers who maybe are bringing in newer mechanics as far as you know, do we start them on bike builds and then or do we start them on washing bikes and move them up? Like any thoughts on how we can facilitate new mechanics in our establishments? Yeah, that's the, the million dollar question right there. I, know. I feel like I've kind of addressed that a little bit a while ago. I think that, you know, ultimately each individual person has a thing that will inspire them. We've kind of gotten accustomed to people being inspired on their own. You know, it was years ago, Every spring, there would be more mechanics applying for jobs than we had positions available. And so it was real easy to get lazy about that process. People wanted the job, so they were eager to do things to separate themselves from the other candidates. And so the cream would rise to the top, and it was pretty easy to get good, you know, filter through the good candidates. We're not seeing that so much anymore. This is not a sport that folks want to, you know, want to enter into as readily as they used to. So how do we get them? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I'm trying to find a political way of, you know, not shooting myself in the foot here by saying, we need to try. For so many years, we just sat back and waited for people to hand in resumes. 
Mm-hmm. Now we, they're not doing that. So we got to seek them out. Right. And there's a lot of different methods to do that. And again, your local community will have ways of doing it, whether it's tacking up a help wanted ad on the bulletin board at the community center, or obviously the, all of the job sites that are available. There's a lot of yeah. UBI, help wanted, PBMA, all, that, all those kind of organizations, sites are available. But more specifically, I think we need to address, we need to be more active in our local communities, go to high schools. Speak to the guidance counselors and the shop teachers about bicycles as a form of technology and how it can be used as a teaching tool at that level to spark that interest. You have done a lot of work with you know high school mountain bike racing, and you have seen interest grow in that aspect of things. We need to tap into those that same vibe from a mechanics and working perspective. You're right. You're spot on. We're working on a virtual job fair too. And we're working on some other things here that we can help, you know, cast that line out and bring people in and welcome in. All right. So lots here. Thank you so much. You know, we have a long-standing friendship. I think this is like the first time we've seen each other in like six years and it's on Zoom. Mm-hmm. So we need to do better than this. This is a good start for <laughs> listeners who might want to ask you more questions. Maybe there's retailers, mechanics, even brands who might want to follow up with you. Is there a contact that you wouldn't mind sharing or? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you really want to talk to me, <laughs> probably the best way is just email. Ifixbikes at Gmail. I-F-I-X-B-Y-X. Awesome. Awesome. Mark, thank you. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> with my questions, just let me kind of go. <laughs> hey, thanks for letting me spew for a while. That's wow. You're going to edit that one out, right? How about thanks for letting me babble on. That's always fun. All right, listeners. So that is it. Thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. The podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If this is your first episode, we urge you to take time, listen to our past episodes. In the podcast, you will find relatable insight and a deeper dive into the heart of the bicycle industry. The show is made possible through advertisements from our sponsors. Please consider supporting them as they have us. You can learn more about advertisements or make a donation to the show online at mbda.com. Finally, the easiest way to support the show is to subscribe and share your favorite episode with friends online. You can go one step further and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for the editing and promotional graphics that went along with today's episode. Special thanks again to Mark for coming on and to past episode guests. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. And with this, we go. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Bicycle Retail Radio.